This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to get to the breaking news about John Jones. We'll talk about Netflix's Tiger King taking the world by storm. We'll also speak to Gideon Litchfeld about our future in society, as well as Christine Brennan about the cancellation of the Olympics. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 3 p.m. on Sirius XM Fight Nation, Channel 156. If you're just joining us, this was news that broke today, just a matter of minutes ago, quite honestly. Uh, John Jones has been arrested for aggravated DWI in uh, New Mexico in Albuquerque, and negligent use of a firearm. Now, there's a couple of updates to this story. Number one, uh, the Albuquerque Police Department has issued a statement, quote, As part of the investigation into this incident, our gun violence reduction unit will test the firearm and bullet casing to determine whether the gun has been used in any crimes, said Gilbert Gallegos, or Gallegos, as my wife would say, Communications director for the Albuquerque police in a, said in a statement to MMA fighting, quote, reducing gun violence in Albuquerque is our top priority. Um, now, here's my thought on this. Again, innocent until proven guilty. Let's just be very clear about that. I have no doubt in my mind that John Jones has never committed some kind of crime with a gun. I mean, other than a shooting into the air or something. But, you know, what... what, what, what you know, a robbery or something like that. Do I think that he's ever done that? Not in, not on your life. No chance. The question is, does he have friends who did or associates or has the gun been passed around in some kind of way? Was it his gun? Like, you know what I mean? Like the ways in which it could end up in his hand. Uh, that's the only part that gives me some concern. Now that's probably pretty minimal. I suspect he's got his own batch and I don't think he's ever, ever committed a crime in that way, but I would, I really hope that there's not been poor firearm management in the house where he could get hemmed up in something he really wasn't responsible for. Now, uh, Cobb, real quickly, you had looked into this. DWI, DUI, a lot of times the difference could be because he had a DUI in Binghamton, New York in 2012. He had the 2015 hit and run in Albuquerque. So this would be his third offense, essentially driving, right? Um. Your reading on this, and we are not lawyers, is that DWI and DUI, they could basically be the same thing, but states have different names for them. Is that correct? Understanding we're not attorneys. Yes, correct. And the again, he got the aggravated DWI, which means uh, he was double the legal limit. So he was at point zero one eight is where he was at. Uh, let me, uh, what is, uh, hold on, I'm going to ask my friend here. Uh, okay. So my buddy is an attorney who does this kind of stuff for people, not celebrity clients. Um, I asked him what he thought of this and I said, it's his third offense or third alleged offense, right? Cause innocent until proven guilty. And my buddy who's an attorney says it's not what they get charged with. It's what they get convicted of. And then what was the sentencing? So here's what it says from MMA Fighting. Back in 2012, Jones was arrested for driving under the influence after crashing his Bentley Continental GT into a pole in Binghamton, New York. He pled guilty to DWI charges, paid a fine, and had his driver's license suspended for six months. Okay. So he was also arrested three years later in 2015 after being involved in a hit-and-run accident in Albuquerque. Of course, he ran a red light, crashed two different vehicles. There was, you know, 
marijuana paraphernalia in the car, blah, blah, blah. We know the story. He pled guilty to leaving the scene of an accident and was sentenced to 18 months of supervised probation. So now he's been charged with DWI. Again, innocent until proven guilty, but let's assume he is found guilty. My friend tells me there's a couple of factors that weigh this. One is um, it's what they were convicted of. And so if he got probation in two different times or one time and then not probation the other time, he just had his driver's license suspended, uh, he could get probation this time. If the, if the, in this very state to state, he says, if the state has a, like sort of a third strike in your out kind of policy, he might have to do the minimum, which could be anywhere from a month to six months in jail plus a fine. Uh, and he also says nothing in terms of DWI versus DUI states just have different names for it. So he could get, it sounds like Cobb, he could get probation again, assuming he's found guilty, which he may not be. Uh, or he could get a very, very light jail sentence, a month to six months. My guess is if he has to spend any time behind bars, it will be very minimal. It'll be very, very minimal. A month is what I think. What you got? Okay, I'm just looking, at, I'm just looking this up again for more differences on DUI, DWI. The first one, that again, originally when I first read this, it was it could be the same thing, but you know, states declare it different. Another one I just found, okay, so D, DUI can be charged based on erratic driving behavior and suspicion of the influence of alcohol or a field sobriety test. DWI generally refers to driving while impaired by drugs, either prescribed or recreational. Yeah, but they did his blood alcohol, so that's just an alcohol test at that point, right? But Yeah, that's what I'm just finding on uh, what could be the difference between yeah. the two. Yeah, but if it's a blood alcohol test, they're literally measuring the alcohol in your bloodstream, so that wouldn't be necessarily involved. So... Here we have John Jones. I'll say this, man. You know, <sighs> golly, you know, the, you can only imagine what the internet is saying right now. They are dunking all over the guy. And I said it before. I'm going to say it again. I find the whole thing kind of sad. Um, first of all, he might just be innocent. Uh, oh, and by the way, let's talk about the firearm charge. My buddy says um, that's a misdemeanor in New Mexico. It turns out so that won't make or break the worst end of the punishment. But, you know, not a, not a great look. Um, uh, you know, here's what's funny. You might ask, like, what the UFC might do about this. Uh, nothing, right? First of all, he's innocent until proven guilty, as we all know. Second, even if he is found guilty, if he only has to spend a month in jail, what do they care? I mean, they're, they're trying to put on a show in the middle of a global pandemic. I don't, they don't seem to feel like they're bound by the rules that everybody else is. And to have a champion like this get arrested like this in the way that he did, potentially criminally convicted, depending how long this lasts, yeah, that's not a great look. But if they can get back to normal and fire up the chainsaws and have him out there competing, I, I don't think that they'll really care. I really don't. I, the UFC has gotten to the point now where it's like, I'm not sure. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic about this. I'm saying this as a function of confusion. I don't know what they care about in terms of what their athletes do and don't do. Like they, for a time they had that code of conduct, which is still technically on the books, but they don't really, they don't really enforce it to any kind of degree. Um, this is not their first running with John. Obviously they've had a number of them and they seem to sort of throw their hands up, uh, to not really give a lot of guidance on this. I suppose it's kind of hard to give guidance to independent contractors, but nevertheless, it's just, it's not really clear to me. This is going to be some kind of scenario where the UFC really says we've had enough. Do y'all believe that? Because I don't believe that. 
Uh, and especially if they're in the middle of this global pandemic where there are people like me and many other members of the MMA media, it's not just me, expressing some concern about, you know, I think it's advisable to do a show in the middle of a global pandemic. And they seem utterly intent on going forward with it. And um, without without much concern for what the media scrutiny involved might be. So... Do we expect actions on behalf of the UFC here that would tell you that they've got some kind of line in the sand policy or something else? I mean, Conor McGregor did what he did, and what was their answer? Well, you know, he's got so much to deal with with the state that we don't want to do anything else. And maybe that's the right answer. Maybe the answer is let the state handle it, and we'll do what we do, and it'll be all be separate because the state will come down on them. Um, but it's just so unlike every other sports entity out there. It's so weird working in this industry, man. Like in every other industry, I mean, people complain about what the NFL does with guys, uh, you know, with Tyreek Hill and uh, Junior Gallette and everyone else. Uh, Greg, well, Greg Hardy kind of washed himself out of the NFL, but, you know, these guys who can still play at some kind of level, Junior Gallette, sort of a different case, but, you know, Tyreek Hill, they can play a little bit. Oh, the UFC, you know, the NFL cleared them of this, that, and the other. Isn't this just proof that the NFL wants them to play? It's like, I don't know what you want them to do. Um, on some level, on the other level, it's like even things that they do, suspending them, fining them, making them ineligible to play until investigations have been done. However minimal you think that might be, and you might have a good argument for it, isn't that like matter-of-factly much more than what you see on the UFC side at this point? And again, those guys are employees in the NFL. These are independent contractors in the UFC, so that's going to really dictate the kind of leeway and uh, posture that I think the UFC adopts, but it's like I'm at a point now where folks always ask me, is this going to be some kind of a hang-up for him in his UFC career? And I'm like, I don't know why it would be. Uh, it, it was in the sense of like bad PR and like getting sideways with management back when it first kind of happened. Like, you know, I'll never ha- – I, I, I was there, Cobb, when Dana White did a town hall with Jim Rome at Sirius XM, and I was there when he said – uh, he would never put John Jones in another main event. And of course he did uh, several times since then. But um, I don't even think, you, like it's not from, we're not going to do a whole lot, but we're going to have bad language towards him. Like, oh, I can't believe he did this. The guy is a, is a, is a you know, an F up or whatever. To just throwing your hands in the air to now like not even acknowledge. <laughs> Not even acknowledging it. They're going to treat this as probably no different than John Jones getting the mail. It's like, what did he do today? Oh, he went to his front yard and got the mail. Ah, what do we care? You know, it's just a, it's a, it's a, this MMA is such a, I mean, I wish I could say combat sports, but it's not combat sports because, um, you know, like Bob Arum doesn't want to put on shows in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and Gervonta Davis hit that woman, and Showtime never said one thing to us about we couldn't talk about that. Or, no, I should say hit the woman. Allegedly seems to have hit the woman, whatever the... You know, he's also innocent until proven guilty. Like they, Boxing seems to have an understanding that like bad PR is not a thing that you really want to foster. A UFC seems to feel immune from it. Maybe they're right, too. I'm not even sure I can say that they're wrong. To be perfectly honest with you, crazy, crazy times, man. 
The Luke Thomas Show is your one-stop destination for MMA. If you're in a UFC title fight and you get finished in the first round, yo, you lost. Sports. I cheer for loser teams. As well as pop culture and entertainment. No matter what Star Wars comes out, I'll just find a way to like it. No. The Luke Thomas Show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on your home for combat sports. Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 and the Sirius XM app. Now included free for most subscribers. All right, let's get to it. Joining me now is the editor-in-chief of the MIT Technology Review. He had a great article that sort of caught my attention called We're Not Going Back to Normal. It's Gideon Litchfield. Hi, Gideon. How are you? Hello, Luke. Good to be here. Uh, Gideon, before we talk about the piece in particular, because everything is moving so fast, uh, you wrote this on the 17th of March, um, how would you describe the average Americans, or let's say Western world at this point, have, have... in your mind, have people fully grasped the societal change uh, that is about to happen? And if not, why? Is it just the scale of it? I think I don't think everybody has. I mean, I think you're seeing different different levels of grasping it, um, depending on you know how plugged people are into the news, how much they're following the science, how much they're looking at what's happening in the rest of the world. You know, I I've been going out still sometimes to the stores and overhearing conversations. And I can see that for some people that are still thinking of this as, as a thing that we will get through in a few weeks um, and then everything will go back to normal. Uh, but I think it's just, yeah, the, the implications of a pandemic that it takes possibly a year and a half to bring under control, I don't think have uh, fully filtered through to a lot of, to a lot of people. What is the reason for that? Is it because it's a once in a century event? Is it because Americans tend to have a cavalier attitude about the danger they face, or is it something else? I think it's it's, it's a once in a well, it, it's a once in a century event. Although it could be in a once in a decade event, and I can talk about that in a minute. But um, I think that there's just a little bit of an unwillingness to accept something that is going to be such a wrenching change. Uh, and America has been a little bit in terms of timing has been behind the curve of what's been happening, obviously, in Asia, but also in Europe. And I think it's just taken time for that realization to come through. And I think it doesn't help that the leadership in this country and particularly the president is still maintaining a nar- maintaining a narrative that actually this is something that we can get through fairly quickly. I think that sort of I would call that magical thinking um, or a certain kind of denial of what is actually going on. And I feel like other countries, particularly in Europe, have come to terms with that reality in the last few days or weeks. Britain Britain was in denial as well until uh, just under a couple of weeks ago, and now I think it's seeing the scale of the crisis. But I feel like in America, that message hasn't fully filtered down from the top yet. Is it, I mean, Boris Johnson is hardly the uh, exemplar of you know, clear epidemiological um, – you know, I don't know what the word is, but, but somehow, <laughs> somehow he seems to have gotten a little bit more of the message. Is it merely that there's more consistent, I won't call it uh, alarmist messaging, but concern messaging from the top down? Is it merely that a leadership question? I think it's that, uh, honestly, I think it's that in the UK, there is a little bit more respect for, for science and a little bit more respect for the expertise. And for all of his shortcomings, Boris Johnson, at some point got the message, got scared, realized what was going on and and has fallen into line with what, you know, what, with reality. And I just I, don't, I just don't feel like that has happened with uh, Donald Trump. 
Before we get to the fact that it could be a once-in-a-decade issue, you know what's something else that sort of keeps coming up? And these are obviously not great arguments, but they the the regularity of which to which they are circulated is really sort of weird, right? So let me give you an example. Um, obviously, I think I think yesterday or this morning in the United States we crossed a thousand deaths with coronavirus. We'll see how many there ultimately be, uh, will happen. But I talked to people, and these are not bad people, Gideon, and they're not they're not necessarily uneducated people. But they say H one N one killed twelve thousand, or look how many car wrecks there are every year. And of course, if a terrorist killed a thousand people from January to now, you know the amount of money and attention that would be uh, spent and uh, military might muster to challenge it would be overwhelming. Why doesn't that same kind of alarm trigger people with this particular case? I think people are focused on what has happened so far rather than what could happen. Because again, the scale of what could happen is hard to comprehend um, and and to accept unless you. You know, unless you're looking at the numbers very closely and see and see what's sort of written in them in, in an inevitable way. Um, you know, H1N1 killed 12,000 people. It was over a certain period of time, but it, it was an epidemic that was ultimately, uh, you know, stamped out. Um, and what people, I think, don't quite get is that this epidemic now, or pandemic, is beyond the point of stamping out. It's beyond the point of containment. Uh, it is now widespread enough um that all we all the only action we can take at this point is to you know as everyone says to flatten the curve to try and prevent it from spreading very rapidly all through the population and i think then the other thing that i feel people are discounting in particular when they talk about the number of car crashes and the car 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 deaths a year which is true i mean i think the number of people who die in car car crashes each year is horrendous but those are spread over a certain length of time. They come at a fairly predictable pace. The healthcare system is already set up to deal with them. In other words, society tolerates them. It probably shouldn't, but society has learned to function with that that level of, of car crash deaths. Society is not set up to function with deaths from coronavirus at the pace that we're likely going to see if we don't take action. And in particular, I think there, there are even, you know, there are even people who say, Look, the number of deaths in uh, across the country as a whole, it will be it might be less than the total total number of car crash deaths. But what they're not taking into account is that the the concentration which, which those come will collapse the healthcare system, and we're not only going to see people dying of coronavirus, but we'll see people dying because they can't get regular medical treatment for conditions they have because the healthcare system is too choked up with people dealing with coronavirus, and then they're also forgetting that. You know, the toll on doctors and nurses and health techs is going to be intense. It's, this is this is like, you know, the medical healthcare equivalent of being sent to Vietnam. They're going to be under intense stress. They're going to be suffering PTSD. And it's going to be very, very hard on, on the entire healthcare system. So let's get to the other claim you had made here, which I think is probably true, but worth fleshing out for the audience's sake. Uh, the Spanish flu of 1918 was a once-in-a-century event in terms of the scale and the damage that it caused. Maybe this could end up being something similar, but you also indicated it could be once in a decade. Why is that? Well, when I say that, what I mean is, is you know, once in a decade or so, we get a an epidemic or a pandemic of some kind, like SARS, H1N1, and so on. And it's a roll of the dice every time, uh, just how deadly that, that virus could be. Um, and how deadly it is depends on things like how contagious it is, 
how long it incubates in people before they start to show symptoms. In other words, how easily it can, it can continue to be spread by people who don't know they have it. Um, so factors like that are different for each virus. And it, as I say, it's a roll of the dice which virus we get. Um, so, you know, it could be that something like this comes across, comes around once in a century. Um, but it could be that the next the next virus that emerges in this way a few years from now is as bad or worse. And I think that one of the things that I hope will come out of this pandemic in the longer term is that we we develop the resilience, the healthcare system that is capable of dealing with with something like this. In other words, spotting it early on, um, taking measures to contain it and preventing it from getting out of control. Okay. Now, one of the things that's key about this piece you had written, and we'll tweet it out the station account. Again, I'll give you the name here for the listeners who have not seen it. It's called We're Not Going Back to Normal, is this idea that like, okay, well, maybe we'll get it under control in certain spots, and then we can just sort of slowly resume our lives. But there's a lot of reasons to think that this incremental, uh, you know, your wait, initial wait out period, two months, let's say, for the sake of argument, and then you can just slowly open things up, that actually, there, there's a lot of reason to believe anyway, at this juncture, that, that might not work. Why? So, you know, this piece was written right after a study came out from researchers in London at Imperial College. And what they did was they modeled the spread of the virus. And they showed that if you uh, – they modeled a number of scenarios, a number of different ways of trying to stop the spread. So they said, what happens if you just close the schools and big sporting events? Or what happens if you let most people go about their daily lives more or less as normal, but just isolate everyone who's vulnerable, like you know, older people and people who have compromised immune systems, for instance. They modeled all of these different scenarios, and they found that in almost all of them, you still get a surge of people with COVID so big that it overwhelms the healthcare system by, by a, a factor of multiples. You know, in, in the best case scenario, there were eight times more patients than the healthcare system could cope with at any one time you know, normally. And they found that the only scenario that brings it under control to a reasonable degree is the one uh, that involves widespread social distancing. In other words, everything, you know, everybody tries to stay at home as much as possible and have as few as contact with as few people as possible. And then they said, if you do this, if you do this for two or three months, it brings the peak down. It brings infections under control. But as soon as you open things back up again, the virus starts to spread again because you haven't eliminated it altogether. You you can't lock everybody completely in their homes for two weeks or for two months. Um, some people still have to go to work. You know there are there are ways in which it circulates around. So as long as there is one case of the virus around, as long as there's one person with the virus, it can start to spread again. And so the scenario was we can have social distancing. We can bring the peak down for two or three months. Then we can sort of open it up, open things up again for about a month or so before the number of cases starts to rise to a dangerous level. And then we have to clamp back down again. And then we clamp back down for two or three months and then we open up again for a month. And it keeps on going like that until we develop a cure or a vaccine. And the developing a vaccine, it's generally agreed, will take at least 12 to 18 months before one has been developed, tested, um, shown to be effective and then produced at a large scale. Um, there are there could be potentially a cure sooner than that. There are several drugs that already exist and that are in clinical trials. None of them has been proven to work, but you know there are there are some possibly potentially promising effects. So it's conceivable that we might find a drug sooner than that 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 is somewhat effective at slowing at slowing the virus down and 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 uh, 
and treats enough people that we that we can reduce the reduce the impacts on the healthcare system. But absent that, that's the scenario. We we social distance for a couple of months, we open up for a month, and then we go back to clamping down. Hmm. So let's get to this uh, what the president has suggested, which was you know, and who knows if it if, if he has any real intentions of it. Also. Um, as we know, states can make their own choices about what to do. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting, Gideon. I live in the nation's capital, and I was on my phone last night, and the emergency alert system uh, popped up a message from the mayor saying that uh, everything in the nation's capital is going to be on lockdown uh, minus essential services until the 24th. But, of course, the president, who lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, had said he wanted everything to reopen around Easter. But here's my concern about that. He might have to find a church service outside of the city on that day, so I suspect he might be able to. Uh, and I, I believe that places like New York will be much more vigilant about not adhering to, um, uh, what do you want to call it, epidemiological claims that don't hold a lot of merit. Still, some places might. Right. Uh, what, what, if he, if this kind of, you know, this kind of federalism has its way with a disease, what, what in your mind might all that look like come, let's say, April eighteenth? Well, look, I think what's what's happening is what you're seeing right now is every state is, is adopting its own policies. I think slightly fewer than half at the moment, if I remember rightly, have got some form of lockdown or, or shelter in place or, some, or something like that. And so I think if the president says, no, it's right, everybody can come out of their homes, I think a lot of states will ignore him. Um, the issue is that if you have that kind of patchwork response, if some states are more strict than others, then it reduces the effectiveness of the measures that any, any particular state are taking. Because New York can be locked down, but you know, as as long unless you completely shut New York off from the rest of the country, you'll still have people coming in and out. Um, and so, if cases are spreading faster in some other states, and and people are still able to to come back and forth to New York, even if it's at a reduced, even if there are much fewer people coming. You're still exposing New York. You're still making it vulnerable. Um, and so unless you have a kind of co a consistent national policy, I think that what, what you risk seeing is maybe a little bit like what's happening in – has been happening in Europe now, which is that different country, different states will have different levels of infection. And where it's you know being brought under control in one place, it's starting to flare up in another. And then once, once it's – been brought up in control in that other place and, and that that state starts to relax, maybe it will flare up again because it, new people are coming in from other states. So the whole thing, it's, it's a little bit like, imagine wildfires where, you know, they flare up in one, in one spot and the firefighters stamp them down, but then they flare up in another spot. You could have this kind of continuous rolling, ongoing flare-ups of infections all around the country for months on end, unless there's a consistent policy. Uh, last question for you. Really appreciate your time, Gideon. Uh, aside from the great work that's being done at your publication, have you read anything you could recommend to the listeners? Has there been some kind of source of information that's been maybe terrifying at times? Of course, the Imperial study, Imperial College study is one. But beyond that, maybe something a little more accessible to the layperson that's given you clear, concise information about this, a good a good resource for anybody to, to uh, look at. I mean, so I'm actually going to recommend two stories that, that we did not publish, um, but I think they are very, very good. They've been very, very widely read. And they're really good at just explaining what's going on uh, in really simple terms, but very based on the data. And they're by a guy who is not actually a health expert and epidemiologist. His name is Tomas, T-O-M-A-S, Pueyo, P-U-E-Y-O. Um, he published them on Medium, on medium.com. They're long, 
but they're really clearly laid out and they explain why the social distancing is important and they explain what sorts of policies would be needed to bring to keep things to bring things under control once you've done that initial flattening of the curve. Um, how, in other words, how you keep the pandemic from flaring up again once you've brought it down to an acceptable level. And I think those explain as well as anything else what I think the challenge is that faces us, faces this country and faces every country in the world. And I think if people could read those and understand that, I think they would just have a much clearer appreciation for whether or not the government is doing the right things. Got it. Uh, the piece is great, and it's really sober. It's a good p- place to start, certainly. Uh, it is called We're Not Going Back to Normal. Gideon Litchfield, of course, the editor-in-chief of the MIT uh, Technology Review. Gideon, I appreciate your time today. Great information, of course. Stay safe, and um, we'll see what happens, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Luke. Stay safe as well. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music plus sports, comedy, talk, and news. They have it all. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Go to SiriusXM.com busted to see offer details and to subscribe. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. All right, we are back. Luke Thomas Show. I hope you're doing well. Give us a follow on the old Twitters, at MMA on SiriusXM. Yeah, and if you got a voicemail for us, send it. Luke Thomas show at gmail.com. All right, Cobb, let's talk about this. This is the, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but Netflix has added a trending segment on like when you on its interface, like when you go to the main interface. So Cobb, do you share one account with different logins in your house? In other words, if you log into Netflix on my house, it's got my account. Uh, it's one account, but it's got my login, my wife's login, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law. And even we have one for Violetta now, which is like all, you know, Word Party and uh, Elmo and stuff. Uh, do you guys have it that way? No, my parents have their account. I have my own account. Okay. Still, I pay for. when you log in, it goes to the main interface. It will show yeah. you what's trending now, which, by the way, I kind of like because before, like, it would have a thing that said popular on Netflix and it would just be a hodgepodge of stuff. Now it tells you, like, in specific order. And number one is Tiger King. Now, Cobb didn't believe me. I don't want to give this show away. But the best way to explain this is there are people in the like semi-regulated big cat, not just big cat, but predominantly big cat animal world. Uh, imagine the craziness that comes with that, like where you know it's semi-legal, a lot of it illegal. Um, the kind of people you have to be to want to have like three hundred tigers, uh, mixed with redneck middle Oklahoma. I've been mugged in my life. Never in New York City, never in Washington, D.C., only in Oklahoma. I just want to point that out. And then, uh, add on top of that, a guy who is gay, which by itself is not necessarily interesting, but relative to the environment that he's in, which is, you know, very, very much, you know, Christian America. Added on top of that, uh, he's got beef with other animal people in other redneck states. (laughs) Add on top of that, He's seducing straight men to bang him with big cats and meth. Is that a fair assessment, Cobb, of Tiger King? <laughs> yeah, you pretty much hit every which way, yeah. <laughs> what do you make of Joe Exotic, who is essentially the main character in all of this? How would you describe him for someone who's, if you looked at him? He's a mix between RuPaul and Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh, a hundred percent. So he's got this great like mullet that's like bleach blonde uh, <laughs> on top and like brown on the side. Yeah, uh, it's like the worst like, haircut imaginable. 
you wouldn't even have to hear him speak to kind of guess where he's from. It's one of those type of things. But he's also a little bit glammed out. He's got a bunch of piercings in his ears and yep. his eyebrow. Pink sequin like, shirts. Yeah, it looks like he might be wearing mascara, possibly. We yeah. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, are you just tired, Joe Exotic? Or are you wearing makeup? Yeah, so he looks and sounds the way you would expect some kind of Tiger King would. I guess you could put it that way. But I got to tell you, when I first watched the first episode, I was like, all right, these guys are all a little crazy and I get the appeal, but man, Luke oversold the hell out of this show. I don't know what the big deal is. All right, all right. Episode two, I was like, all right, getting a little bit more interesting because they kind of get into, you know, the, the little kind of cult uh, cult style feeling that these animal, these big cat guys have with, with their audience, with, you know, with women, with men. And I'm like, all right, a little bit more interesting, but episode three hooked me right in. I'm like, this is why Luke is watching this, because every single moment you're like, this can't get any weirder. It gets weirder. It, it gets weirder gets, in a hurry. <laughs> it gets weirder in ways you couldn't script. If you wrote this show as fiction, people would say it's too unbelievable. And the other part is that Joe Exotic has one of the, he has got, he's got a couple, first of all, oh, here, we didn't mention this part. He's a gay, redneck, uh, tiger-collecting polygamist. He's a polygamist, Cobb. He's got not one but two husbands during the course of the filming of this show. Uh, Apparently everyone in Tiger King's a polygamist. Yes. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Which, by the way, you'll get to this later. They both come out and they're like, we're not gay. Uh, but oh, they- I, have, I have gotten past episode three. Okay, all right. So I, mean, I don't want to spoil it. You'll see that these guys, I mean, you don't want to stereotype and be like, I can spot a gay guy and... Uh, they all look different than straight. I mean, so there's a lot of times there's no way to tell. And, uh, you know, it's, there's no kind of science to it exactly. Except uh, you're talking about guys who were, you know, never in any kind of uh, same-sex relationship in their life. Uh, this was the first. Uh, which, you know, in of itself is not necessarily. Anyway, it, it's just not like with Joe Exotic, he's like, I knew from a teenage year as I was. These other ones were like, I didn't know until I met Joe. And then you come to find out later that they told everyone they were straight. But that the one husband, what was his name? It was not Travis. It was the other one. He starts out the show with like half of his teeth missing. And he ends up in the show with like most of his teeth missing from meth. What was his name? You're, you're muted. You're muted. Careful. Is it John? I can't really remember who it was. He's, he's got a tattoo right above his... I don't want to say what it is. Yeah. It's called Property of Joe Exotic. <laughs> I know which one. You know what's funny? Aside from Joe Exotic and the main like cat rescue people, I wasn't really keeping track of the other guys' names as well. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, think they, I believe they called it Meth Mouse. Meth, Meth Mouth, yeah. yeah. And you can see it get worse over time on the show. And then you realize that these dudes feed these cats. Again, I'm not spoiling it for you because all of this is sort of incidental. But then you realize these dudes feed these cats by taking expired meat from Walmart and then grinding it up and giving it to the to the cats. And Joe Exotic saves on money in terms of how he pays his employees who work at the zoo by allowing them to get first dibs on the expired meat from the truck at Walmart. I mean, it is a it is a it is a redneck kingdom in ways I cannot possibly describe to you that would you would at ever at any point tell you or believe rather that I am telling you the truth. If you're not watching Tiger King 
on uh, Netflix. I, uh, what else could be? I mean, this guy, Brendan Schaub and I were talking. Brendan calls him the quarantine king. Because, I mean, <laughs> who has provided more entertainment in the middle of a pandemic than this fool right here? Nobody. Luke, it's funny. As I was watching this thing, I, I don't know if I've ever, <laughs> while watching, said the words, wait, what? Yeah. As many times <laughs> as I did watching this. Dude, they had and that's, they had that's to slow roll this thing. They couldn't just come out with all the details at once. They had to slow roll this thing because it involves, I mean, how many different things does it involve? It involves a sexuality. It involves class. Uh, race, you know, it's interesting. Race never becomes a component. But it involves animal abuse, exotic animals, cult-like behavior. It involves drug addiction. It involves murder for hire. It involves rivalry. It involves internet feuds. What am I missing, Cobb? <laughs> You're pretty much hitting it. And the thing I love most, whenever you hear about one of these legal charges that's in this show, I don't know about you, Luke, but usually when I watch some kind of crime documentary on Netflix, I kind of make up my mind like this guy did it or this guy didn't do it or even come to a fair compromise, like making a murderer. I'm like, I don't know whether he did it or not, but I definitely believe they planted evidence. Like that's becomes my overall arc with every single legal charge in this show. I'm like, I don't know, man, he might have done it. He might not. I have no idea. (laughs) You're like both. It's both totally believable and totally suspect and loose, but yeah. it's both possible. It's like, wow, this is one of the most insane things I've ever heard, and yet this is Joe Exotic. It is entirely within character. Like, nobody in this show is so upstanding that you're like, nah, no way. No way they could have done that. Right. It's like, yep, totally could have done it. Even, even the most normal-seeming one is like, yeah, he probably did it, most likely, but I have no idea. And the best part is, even when they're not talking about Joe Exotic and his rivals, they talk about Joe Exotic and his friends, and not merely on his particular uh, zoo, but other. there's other dudes in, like, here's what you realize. Siegfried and Roy are totally normal for the big cat world. You think that they're weird, but then when you see other people in the big cat world, you're like, oh, now I get it. These dudes totally make sense, right? Siegfried and Roy are the refined cat owners. <laughs> Dude, really what you find Siegfried out. and Roy are the Bert and Ernie of the big cat world. Two normal dorks. Two lamos, utterly you know, you, you think you think those guys were flamboyant and and, and Liberace esque or whatever. Br- buddy, they're khaki wearing uh, you know, Brooks brothers, preppy nerds. Compared to everyone else in the big cat world. So you got like this crazy, you know, it's funny. I always say this about like um, animal rights people. This is why animal rights people have a hard time making the argument. And I've said this before. I'm not vegan uh, for a lot of reasons. uh, But I believe that the vegans have the most consistent ethical argument about why you should and shouldn't eat. You can agree with it or disagree with it. But they are consistent, right, Across, across what they believe. But then they go through these tactics that just seem totally unpalatable to you in terms of convincing you. And you don't realize, and I don't want to conflate Joe Exotic with the vegan movement because they're actually diametrically opposed to one another. I just mean that people who make animal animals the center of their lives, they often lose that social ability parameters that make them succeed with other humans to a degree or may help them understand what other humans are looking for. And, dude, these people get so in the weeds on animals, whether it's Joe Exotic, his rivals, or his friends. They have lost all – dude, all their haircuts are weird. Their beards are weird. Their clothes are weird. Their titles that they give themselves are weird. 
Cobb, what am, am I wrong? Everything about how they adorn themselves and present themselves to the rest of the human world makes no sense other than inside the animal world. Oh, 100%. Oh, every single one of these guys, if you just met them at a bar and you're like, oh, what do you do? They'd be like, oh, I work at a tiger zoo. You'd be like, yeah, I can see that. Yep. Like, totally. Yep. <laughs> that explains the tiger t-shirt you're wearing right, right now because they all have to wear something that has a tiger on it throughout the interviews in this documentary. That explains your 1990s soul patch and long braided hair that's all white down to your ass at age 50. That's what That's what explains that. Right. I mean, who why else would you look that way? Anyway, if you're not watched Tiger King, Cobb, we should revisit this when you finished it, because it gets if you think if, if you think the weirdness is over, I have news for you. It's not. We'll revisit it one more time when you finish it. I don't know how you guys are out there spending your quarantine time, but if you're looking for oh, sports is a distraction. No, fuck sports. Tiger King is a distraction, ladies and gentlemen. It is unlike anything else you have ever seen. That's not a threat, that's a promise. You got to go watch it. And if you do watch it, give us your review of it. Hit us up with a voicemail uh, at, uh, excuse me, voicemail over at LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say about it. The Luke Thomas Show is your one-stop destination for MMA. If you're in a UFC title fight and you get finished in the first round, yo, you lost. Sports. I cheer for loser teams. As well as pop culture and entertainment. No matter what Star Wars comes out, I'll just find a way to like it. No. The Luke Thomas Show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on your home for combat sports. Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 and the Sirius XM app. Now included free for most subscribers. Joining me on the hotline, she is, of course, a USA Today national sports columnist. You can see her work as well in commentating for CNN and ABC. She had a great piece in uh, USA Today about the Tokyo Olympics and why canceling it, or I should say postponing it, is what is needed. It's Christine Brennan. Christine, how are you? Well, Luke, I am fine. It's been a busy week. I felt like I'm at the Olympics with all this reporting, but uh, great to talk to you and hope you're doing well uh, also. Likewise. Now, I won't give away your number, but your number is the, the area code is identical to mine, which means we live probably not too far away from one another. So I'll, I'll ask you, how are you holding up in, uh, in this uh, part of the country? Sure, sure. I don't mind saying Washington, D.C. is where I am, and uh, uh, I guess that's where you are, too, which is, which is great. And actually, all, I'm fine. Obviously, I have great concerns for the nation, for the world, uh, th- those who are sick, uh, obviously those who tragically have lost their lives um, due to the coronavirus. This is um, unprecedented. Never seen the biggest thing in my life in terms of uh, something uh, going around the world and a story and an issue that we're all dealing with. Um, as journalists and as even more important as human beings. So my heart goes out to people who are suffering and uh, all those people, those wonderful workers and, and whether they're in the airlines or the hotels or restaurants uh, and of course most of all the, those on the front lines, the doctors, nurses, first responders, the people in the hospitals trying to save lives and help everyone. So yeah, there's, it's, it's uh, unbelievable. It's almost overwhelming. That said, as a journalist, I've never felt that, or I've, I've, I've never felt this um, a more important time than this for journalism. Uh, my colleagues, uh, the political beat, my colleagues covering the White House and Congress, and then of course, the, even the stories that we're doing in sports journalism and with the Olympics and talking to the athletes about the difficulties in training when the Olympics were still, before they'd been postponed. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, all good. Um, my life is pretty much actually the same. I work from home, so not much has changed. But I am so aware that things are so difficult for so many people right now, and, and your heart breaks for all of them. 
You know, what's interesting is I too most, not exclusively, but I mostly work from home. So it's not been much of an adjustment for me, but it's so funny because I see a lot of sports fans and I think it's an entirely understandable response to be clear, but they're like, wow, I really want to see sports right now. I really do uh, want to see sports. And, and of course, um, I suppose all of us would on some level, but I have to tell you, like, it's so not where my head is at. I want the country to get into a place where I feel more comfortable even allowing myself to like sports. Are, are you, am I alone in that? Or do you share maybe some of that sentiment as well, being in media? Absolutely. I, I do share that. And I think that's a great point, Luke, that you're making is that sports is an escape and we love it. And we love to be able to go to a baseball game this summer. Uh, I do that. Uh, Washington Nationals grew up doing that. Detroit Tigers, uh, we grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and, and our dad would take us up to Tigers games. Um, we were big Michigan football fans. We had season tickets and spent tons and tons of Saturday afternoons in Ann Arbor and then went to Northwestern and uh, very involved there. Love going back for, for football, for our women's lacrosse team that's won seven national titles, softball games, uh, men's and women's basketball, Northwestern women's hoops had a great season, heartbreaking that that had to end the way it did as, a, as you're heartbroken for so many athletes, seniors especially in high school and college. And all those graduating seniors, and oh, I mean, that's just, it's, it's not the world's biggest issue, but it, it's certainly front of mind. And um, having said that, yeah, sports seems, uh, well, it's so important and so significant, right? But then it seems so insignificant right now. Uh, I know we're at USA Today doing a lot of stories in addition to breaking the Olympic news the other day. Um, you know, my colleagues, which of course was, was my, my thing, but my colleagues are writing great stories and interesting columns about the NBA. Is it going to come back? What's going to happen with Major League Baseball? What's up with college football even? Where are we going to be in the fall, the late summer and fall? Um, and those are important stories, and, and we're going to keep doing those. But, yeah, absolutely, I agree with you that sports has taken a back seat to these very real issues. And yet, a couple of weeks ago when the NBA uh, announced that it was suspending operations uh, Wednesday, two, what, two weeks ago now, but more than two weeks ago, I think that was the watershed moment. I think people saw that on their phones and went, oh, my God, this is a big deal. So, so in some ways, sports was our North Star there as government officials, as the White House, you know, President Trump calling it a hoax, Democratic hoax, or whatever he call. It. I mean, you know, it, it. We needed to wake up to this, and if sports helped us wake up to the the this very serious nature of this, then I'm proud. I'm proud of sports for being uh, that wake up call, and it certainly, I think, was in those few days, uh, two weeks ago, as as we were coming to the realization of just how big a deal uh, this was. Let's get to the uh, Olympics specifically. So they have been postponed till 2021. Um, make the case for me about why postponing them was the right call. I mean, we're in agreement, but just for the exercise here, why was it the, frankly, it sounds like the only choice. Yeah, it was, and um, it had to be done. And I, a few weeks earlier, I had not been thinking that myself. I, I even wrote a column, I guess, close to a month ago now, we're talking about the options. And it, it was, of course, go on a schedule, cancel, which was not a good option, uh, postpone, or play them without spectators, have the games go on without spectators, which is so weird and it would be so overwhelming to the people of Tokyo and those around the world who were going to come to the games. But because the Olympics are a TV show to so many people, right, 99% of the world watches the Olympics on TV, you know, that could have been a possibility. Well, we quickly, when we saw the men's and women's basketball tournament, say they'll go without spectators, and then a couple of days later, no, no, they're canceled. You know, that spectator idea, the, the spectator list uh, Olympics, uh, you know, certainly was never going to be a great option. 
but that was a few weeks ago. And what changed for me, and I think changed for everyone, including the International Olympic Committee, uh, U.S. Olympic Committee, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, Canada, Germany, Australia, all the ones that spoke out. What changed was hearing the athletes' stories. And I, at first I hadn't thought of this, and then, of course, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it was a week and a half ago I wrote a column and interviewed Lily King, two-time Olympic gold medalist, the great breaststroker, world record holder to this day in the 50-100-meter breaststroke. And Lily trains at Indiana University, where she graduated last year. And so she's at Indiana University at the pool there, obviously one of the greatest swimmers in the world right now. And all of a sudden Indiana closes and the pool closes. So then she and a couple of her training mates go to the YMCA, Think about this, two-time Olympic gold medalist swimming at the Bloomington, Indiana Y. Now, I love the Y, big fan of the Y, um, YMCA, YWCA, but, I mean, how preposterous is that? And then the Y has to close, of course, because of safety, security reasons, restrictions involved with the coronavirus. And so now Lily King, um, two-time Olympic gold medalist, is out of the Y, bounced out of the Y. And you hear these stories, and you're like, okay, that is really weird. And yet the Olympics were still out there. They were still on the calendar. They're still there on the horizon. So, of course, the athletes are going to keep going for this because they've been told to keep, keep going. Uh, Thomas Bach, the IOC president, had said, do the best you can. And so Lily King and everyone else is doing the best they can. And Katie Ledecky, uh, the greatest uh, female swimmer ever in terms of Olympic and world medals, gold medals and, and championships, Katie Ledecky, training herself in Palo Alto, California at Stanford, where she t normally takes classes and, and trains. Stanford closes down their pool. And so eventually Katie Ledecky and her training mate, Simone Manuel, also an Olympic gold medalist, had to actually be swimming in people's private backyard pools. Hmm. I'm not making that up. And I have a, a column out uh, that's on my Twitter feed and whatever people can see. And Katie, you know, one or two strokes, and she's at the other end of the person's pool, the backyard pool. And, of course, this was just untenable. And as Katie said beautifully, far better than you or I could say, Luke, she said, we're being told not to do things, and then we're doing these things. You know, why are we out? Why aren't we social distancing, although she was? Why are, are we harming ourselves and harming others potentially by continuing to train while everyone else is trying to basically stay at home and stay away from people? This drumbeat got louder and louder and louder. The athletes took charge. The International Olympic Committee leadership failed. It was a groundswell from the bottom up. And the athletes helped uh, and, and really forced the decision to postpone the games. It's so interesting, too, right? Because you had written that this is going to be a monumental task to essentially rebook without that's venues and hotels and flights and the whole nine yards. You know, I was looking this up. The, the Olympics has been rescheduled before in the past due to, let's say, wars. Um, but the Olympics has never been as big as it is, and it's never been as... Um, you know, let's be real about it, for profit as it is, I, I can only imagine the task of how difficult it must be, Christine, to push this back one year, even in the same host city. Oh, we've never had anything like this before. You're, you're mostly right on what you said. The, actually, the Olympics have been postponed, or excuse me, canceled um, because of world wars, and, but never, ever have they been postponed. So either the decisions were made in 1916, uh, for those summer games, 1940 for the summer and winter, and 1944 for the winter and summer. Uh, those decisions were just canceled. So they never tried to have them again. And, and of course, that's tragic, but that was World War One and World War Two. There were bigger issues on the table than in Olympic Games. So that's what happened with those five games, three summer, 
to winter during World War One and World War Two. And then the only other situation that is, well, it's not even close, but would be boycotts. 1976, Montreal Games, 1980, Moscow Olympics, and 1984, Los Angeles Olympics were, Los Angeles Olympics were all boycotted uh, by some nations. And uh, those were political decisions, and that was, of course, heartbreaking and just awful for the athletes involved who could not go to the Games uh, that they were scheduled to go to, and then had made one places to to make um, you know on their Olympic teams they'd made it they were going to go and then the boycotts uh, took away their their opportunity but those games did go on with other countries so they they were held so this is the first postponement and yes this is like trying to turn an aircraft carrier I mean it's never been done before all of the billions of dollars uh, obviously the TV networks and now figuring out new dates for them. Uh, even more important, the athletes, 11,000 athletes, uh, completely in limbo, as Katie Ledecky told me. She said, we're waiting to hear, and then we'll, I'll start to gear up with a 13-, 14-month plan at that point. Um, so, the, you know, that's, that's – but they don't know yet. So everyone's on hold. When will the U.S. Olympic trials be for swimming, the U.S. Olympic trials for track and field, because you have to then push those back, you know, like six weeks ahead of the Olympics, say, five, six weeks – Obviously, every country dealing with that, picking those teams. What about the athletes who have already been picked for Olympic teams? Do they get to keep those spots, or will there be new trials for them? I'm guessing they'll probably keep the spots. Uh, the U.S. women's soccer team already qualified. The decision about who would be on the team was going to be made before the Games anyway. That will continue. So that's, that's not too difficult to figure out. And then even the Olympic Village. You're going to host all those athletes, and then they're turning that around within a year or so to have that be housing for people in Tokyo. And people had already bought those apartments. <laughs> and now they're going to be told, no, 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 you can't have those apartments yet because we've got to hold the village uh, open for the athletes when we do have the Olympics. Tickets, flights, hotels, it's massive. On and on it goes. The domino effect of canceling competitions, moving them, extraordinary, as I said unprecedented never seen anything like it because it's never happened before that's super interesting all right let me ask you to unfairly and wildly speculate christine brennan <laughs> which is to say um assuming that we can get this kind of thing under control what is your feeling because neither of us are epidemiologists what is your feeling a about when we get back to some degree of normalcy in sports and two are you concerned that the postponement of the olympics could impact people's ultimate enthusiasm for it by the time it comes around. Well, certainly I think with all sports, how are people going to feel about going to an event, right? You know, being close to people again. I think we're so aware of that. Uh, is it, is it, it's hard in anything to picture people all crammed together in the stands. Like when baseball, if baseball gets going this year, and hopefully it does, is, are people going to really just want to, on a hot day, just all be next to everybody in line again? I don't know. I don't know. How's that going to work? Thankfully, we have television and we have beautiful television sets in our homes and uh, people can watch things in a min you know, myriad of ways. But that's that's certainly one thing. The Olympics, uh, the best guess is summer and almost exactly the same time period in 2021. So that was going to be July 24th to August 9th of 2020. So that's a, the best guess. Uh, the prime minister of Japan, Abe, uh, had said that maybe that would be a spring Olympics, a cherry blossom Olympics. That, of course, then would mean, what, March or April of 2021. That would be sooner. That would be a year from right now. So that's what we know. If there are continual outbreaks of the coronavirus, 
if we haven't, if we don't flatten the curve and have opportunities to have enough beds and enough uh, care for people that get the disease or get the virus, which of course is exactly what we're talking about here, um, then if it flares up again and we're not, if, then if we have to somehow shut things down again, I mean, I have no idea. Obviously, I'm just listening and a consumer of this information like you and everyone else then everything's in jeopardy and we won't even care about if there's a football season, right? Because if this comes back with a vengeance or if we can't tame it and get a handle on it over the next couple of months. So I think anything is up for grabs. Let's hope by next year things are okay. But again, it's not just next year. It's the training now. And the Olympics of 2020, starting July 24th, that date became insignificant. Insignificant. It became now. It became the athletes unable to train or putting themselves and others at risk now. You couldn't fly to a training site because you were told you couldn't fly. Why be around people? Then go visit people and then you infect them. That's Katie's, Katie Ledecky's concern was trying to go somewhere else and then maybe you know, infecting others if she got something on a plane. So as long as athletes are, can't train, you can't really be looking forward too far. So that was the concern now for this year's Olympics. If we have a situation where we're still in some kind of quarantine, shelter in place, and or social distancing, how do athletes of the world, not just Americans, but athletes of the world, start to train again? So that's going to be the first thing we see is when people can start training, then we'll probably see a sense that, okay, good, the Olympics can happen. But if we're canceling college football, and I'm not saying we are, we have no idea. But if college football is being pushed off or it, I saw something about a winter college football season, I have no idea. Obviously, I have no idea. But if, if we're pushing football, if baseball has trouble starting and we're pushing football and fall sports, volleyball, other sports, pushing them maybe into December or January, just say, well, then I'm not sure that the Olympics, how do, how do the Olympics then go off as scheduled if we're still dealing with this in the here and now? with everything on the calendar. And that's the issue. And boy, I wish I had an answer, but I think we just have to wait and see. And of course the athletes of the world among many other people, all of us would like to have these answers. Uh, if you want more of her work, you can get it at USA Today as well as CNN and ABC. But the piece is as much as it hurts, postponing Tokyo Olympics is what's needed. We will tweet that out at the station account. Christine Brennan, of course, is the author. Christine, great work. Appreciate your time today and stay safe. Well, you too, and uh, if we're neighbors, maybe we'll bump into each other in Rock Creek Park or something like that, Uh, six feet apart, of course. That's right, six (laughs) feet, Christine. Don't invade my six-feet radius. No way, I'm I'm being very careful, and I hope everyone else is too. Take care and stay well and stay safe. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.